0: Hello, everyone. It's Joe from A most Story. This is episode number one, part two, A Secret Life. As I discussed briefly in part one coming out, prior to my coming out, I lived a secret life. In this secret life, I did what most boys do at every age. I dated women or girls. I had sex with them. I was into sports. I watched sports. Um, I pretended to be as masculine as any other boy possible at a certain age. I sometimes was more convincible than others but ultimately I tried to steer away from anything that wasn't masculine so that nobody would try to guess or out me at that time. I remember doing this as early as age six. I wanted to be in a dance group or a dance troupe like my friend Shauna down the street was. But in my time and with my family, boys didn't dance. So I had to live vicariously through her and she had a leotard and a tutu and one um day her parents had gone somewhere with her brother and she asked me if I wanted to wear it and the tutu as well and so I said yes and so I put him on and we were jumping around the house and running around and just you know being kids and the door opened and it was her dad mom and her brother I completely collapsed on the couch and just sat there kind of shaking and covering up the fact that I had the leotard and the tutu one and her mom immediately just said it's fine it's fine boys dance it's not a big deal Joey Enos go into Shauna's room and take it off I walked into her room and I took it off and I remember being so embarrassed and so scared and not really sure why but just completely mortified her brother then from then on called me either the ballerina or the dancer which also didn't help with my masculine approach that I was trying to do I mean, I was six years old. I don't really know how masculine I thought I was going to be, but I knew that that was not masculine at all. Having Shauna as my best friend proved very valuable in my early years. One, because we had met on the school bus the first day of kindergarten. She had gone on the bus before me, and I went on after, and the kids were singing, Shauna-na-na, Shauna-na-na-na. And I said, why are they singing that? She said, my name is Shauna. And from that day, we were always together. And so it didn't seem weird to people that her and I were you know, boy to girl, we were our best friends. It also proved valuable as we got older because she was a dance and sports and in cheerleading and she would have a lot of friends that she would bring around which also gave me access to girls to try out my little sexual exploits on and to date, and, you know, just keep up my uh, heteronormal type of behavior that I was trying to exhibit to show how masculine I was. I continued my secret life or masquerade as you could call it all through junior high and high school, I dated girls just like every other boy. I went to school dances. I I was even prom king. I was a total stud, and everyone believed it, right? Shit, I think I even was starting to believe it until I was about 15 years old. I had gotten up that morning and was getting ready to walk out the door uh, out of our home to go to get my bike at the garage, and when I walked out, I noticed on the garage that there was something spray-painted on the front of our garage door using that snow spray that you use like on Christmas trees. And it was the word fag. In my day, the word gay wasn't really readily used uh, as a derogatory term or even something something that was in my vocabulary at that time. The word fag was, and it was something that you avoided with all cost because it would link you to possibly being gay – Or it would make people question, well, why is someone calling you a fag? So when I saw the word fag spray painted with Christmas snow on our garage, I immediately began to have what I would call almost like a heart attack or a stroke. I had this rage and fear, and I was going over and over in my head wondering who would have done this. And I I just became so angry, and my brother walked out right about that point and said, that fucking bitch, he said, Christy did this. Him and his girlfriend had had a fight, and she had said something along the lines, uh, to something, and when we woke up that morning, she had spray-painted our garage with Christmas spray, the word fag. Although I was off the hook, I still remember what it was like to see the word fag spray-painted on our garage and realizing how much power that word had over me at that point in my life. And I will say that today, the word has no power over me, really, and I uh, actually call myself a fag every now and then, and I call others a fag. Not in a derogatory way, but just in a, you know, you're part of the club so you can use the word type of way. In high school, I gained a reputation for being known as the guy who fingered a lot of girls in school. They used to say, Joe's finger's been in it. Um, To the point that my junior year, I was dating a girl that was two years older than I was. And we were at one of those Christmas formal dances where you dress up and you buy the boutonniere and the corsages and all that stuff. Well, it was customary that you would leave the dance and go fool around like, on the school property. And so I fingered her on my typing, uh, teachers steps and the stain from where I wiped my finger after I finger her was there until the day I graduated from high school. I think I mentioned I was a stud, right? But I digress. And this was also about the same time when I'm starting to develop a little bit more sexual interest, desires, um, and activity by myself. A friend of mine's mother had a condominium that was near our home, and they um, had bought a home that was about six miles out of town, and they weren't always going to this condominium. So she had asked me if I would go check on the plants, get the mail, and just kind of check up on the place until they sold it. About a year before, she had turned 40. I was maybe 15 at the time because I was still riding my bike, and I had um, gone over to their home for her 40th birthday party and her friends had gotten her a collection of men's magazines that were naked men posing in physique type of positions with hard-ons and their butts showing and everything. And I wanted one of those magazines. Um, it probably was about four or five months before I actually stole one. It took a lot of frickin' nerve and courage. And I will tell you, if you've ever done this um, when you were in your secret life or you know just trying to learn a little bit more about this other part of sexuality that you completely didn't understand it was amazing but the scariest fucking thing you've ever done i would get this adrenaline rush that would almost paralyze me and at the same time i thought i was going to throw up because i was going to have gay porn and the two were just the weirdest combination of emotions and feelings that you would exhibit when you would do this i went into her closet i took one I put it in a brown paper bag, and I placed it inside my underwear and undershirt, and I put a jacket over the top of that. Now, I mentioned I was on my bike, so I had to ride really straight so I wasn't going to ruin it. When I got home, I got the only tape we ever had in our house, I feel like, duct tape. And I cut out the pictures of the men, and I duct taped them into my Tiger Beat magazine. And I knew that the Tiger Beat magazine would be the best because at that time, my older brother was living at home, and my younger brother was living at home. My younger brother and I couldn't be more different than if, they, we were, if we had different parents. He was never going to look at a Tiger Beat magazine. My older brother had his own room, and he was also not going to look at a Tiger Beat magazine because it wasn't really his thing or era. My mother wasn't going to look at a Tiger Beat magazine because she was Portuguese, and she only spoke Portuguese, and she didn't even understand why we would have that magazine because they were just a bunch of dumb television kids. This was also the same summer that my parents went to Portugal and left me behind for the first time. And that summer, I must have beat my dick so many damn times and never really had a lot going on because I was still trying to figure out like what felt good and what didn't. But I remembered the day that we had to go pick them up at the airport in San Francisco. I went first uh, to my sister's house. My brother dropped me off and I went into her bathroom and my dick was like four times the size it normally was. And I was fucking mortified. I was like, what am I going to tell my mother? Because I'm like, I'm going to have to tell somebody because this is not normal and it's doesn't look like it's going away. Well, from the drive uh, where we lived in Northern California, to San Francisco was two hours. And then we picked up my parents and then we drove back two hours. And when we got back to my sister's house, it had gone down some and I was saved. I wasn't going to have to tell my mother. So I did what any smart kid would do. I beat that fucker so many more times that it got back swollen and I realized that it would just keep going up and down. Now you would have thought at this point, since I was looking at uh, men's physique porn magazines and Prior to that, I was obsessed with the JCPenney's catalog because there was men in there in their underwear, which was amazing. Before that was International Mail Catalog, which was the best thing that ever happened to me, Uh, especially the years where they didn't white out the bulges so you could actually really make out what was in those guys' underwear. One of the um, models that was in the International Mail Catalog actually lived in my town and was cousins with the gay hairdresser that I couldn't identify with that I had talked about in, in my coming out story. When I graduated from high school, it became much clearer that what I was dealing with um, was that I was gay. But I wasn't going to admit it, and I wasn't going to let anybody know. Um, And this is where you go through this really weird period of guilt and um, excitement. So the Tiger Beat magazine, I started feeling guilty about, and so it went in the trash. And then I would realize what I had done, and I would try to get – another magazine or go to somewhere and see if there was a racy kind of video or at this, this is pretty funny. I was obsessed with the movie roadhouse because there's a scene where, uh, Patrick Swayze's friend unzips his pants and you see his pubes and like his stomach hair and whatnot. I had played that so many times that I think I mentioned in the last episode, the tape would go (laughs) because the film had been almost wiped not clean, but it was very well used and very well watched, let's just say. And even that movie at some point ended up getting thrown in the trash when I would feel that what I was doing was a sin or that I was guilty and I felt horrible and I needed to just purge myself of all of it. And you would do this purge and then find it again or repeat it over and over again. And it was just this horrible spiral of the guilt behind what you were doing. It also made you feel like if you threw it away that... You were fixing it. It was going to go away because you no longer had these desires or these ideas uh, in your head that you could easily go to you know, your magazine or, or your movie to try to solve. My really good friend at the time, Arlene, and I had decided that we were going to go to Modesto and we were going to go to the sex store that sold dildos and magazines and all kinds of stuff, the sex shop, I guess. Um, and so we went, and I didn't really have much of a reaction to it. She, I think, bought something. I didn't buy anything, and I ended up – we left. Now, the minute that I knew where that was at, I must have cased that place a hundred times. I would pull over into a parking lot that was nearby it, and I would watch to see who was going in, more so because I was trying to figure out when I was going to go in. I made it to the door a couple times, and people would be either near the door or going into the door, and I'd go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going here. apologize, and I'd immediately turn around and go back to my car. Well, one day, I finally did it. I went in, and I went to the gate porn section and I stood there and I froze and I didn't buy anything and I immediately just walked right out another reason I think that I didn't end up buying anything was because to that point I didn't realize how expensive porn was in 1994-95 a gay magazine was upwards of 20 something dollars and a movie was 50 or 60 dollars if you bought brand new if you bought used it was still 30 something dollars which was a lot for a VHS tape in those days, that eventually was just going to make its way to the trash, and then you'd have to buy another one. Several days later, uh, my sister and I went to the mall, and we were walking, and I saw the clerk from the porn store walking towards us. I tried to compose myself, and my sister and I were talking, and I just kept trying to keep the conversation going, and as the man passed, he said, Hey, how's it going? My sister looked at me, and she said, Who's that? I said, I don't know. Why? She said, He seemed like he knew you, and... Is he gay? And I said, I don't know. Why would you say that? And I went into such a state of rage and fear that I'm not a very violent person at all. I wanted to kill that man because he was making my reality that I was still barely aware of become forefront and present with my sister who was obviously going to ask questions and I wanted him dead for that. Now looking back, I realize... In those final years before I came out, I was probably the most homophobic person on the planet. Because trying to tiptoe into that world, but at the same time not letting the people in it come out, or you even being, you know, accidentally identified as part of it, or somebody recognizing you, or you thinking somebody recognized you, because your state of paranoia is so high at this point that I would constantly call people fags. I would try to you know, discourage any idea of anything gay. And I was the biggest homophobe of anyone I knew. And it's horrible that I acted that way, mostly out of fear and just to try to keep things a base. So that way my cover wouldn't be blown. And the way that I did it was by being a complete homophobe. In 1997, my still best friend, Ruth, had transferred from University of Riverside to San Francisco State. And she lived in the Sunset which was about six miles from the Castro. And I would visit her oftentimes when I was in town and I would go home purposely the route through the Castro. But I would say probably nine out of 10 times, I would never stop. I was afraid that somebody would see me. Uh, I would be outed. Somebody would recognize me, you know, just the most ridiculous things. I lived two hours away from San Francisco and yet I was afraid to stop. But every now and then I would stop and I would pull into a parking spot on the street And I would look in the glove box and pretend I was looking for something in the glove box. But really just trying to see if I could get a glimpse of anyone gay or any activity that was gay. And I never got any. This was also the year that I moved away and was living in Boston. And I found myself on a work trip in Philadelphia. And as I walked by this newsstand, I noticed that they had gay magazines. And I was going to get one. So I went back up to my room and I watched the newsstand until it closed. The first day I was there, I was there for two days and I, I, I literally wrote notes. I remembered writing notes, like how he closed it, what time it was. So the next night I got myself ready and I looked at my notes and I went down exactly 15 minutes before he closed. And I walked by a couple times and there was cause some people like kind of lingering around and then they finally, you know, disappeared. And I went up and I asked for that magazine very quickly and, and I was nervous and at the same time I think I was being a little aggressive because I wanted to hurry up and purchase it and I was looking around the whole time as if somebody was going to see me because I swore again that even though I was in Philadelphia and grew up in Northern California someone was going to recognize me buying that magazine he gave me the magazine I did what I always do with my magazines I put it in my underpants and my undershirt and I put I had a trench coat which is so funny I put trench coat over the top of it and I walked to the hotel and I got in the elevator I remember That elevator ride must have been the longest elevator ride of my life because one, my heart was beating so fast and I think I was getting an erection at the same time because the anxiety of possibly getting caught and the excitement of going to have this magazine, the two are just such weird combination, but at the same time, they were working for me and I was loving it. These magazines were also known for having 1-900 numbers in the back, which Prior to the internet, you would use the what we called the phone sex lines, and you, they were like $1.99 a minute. You would dial in. It would put you in this like communal group where you could hear uh, different people's phone like activate, and they would say different things. And if you liked the person and they liked you, you could push a number, and it would take you into what was called a private room. And so I had flown back to Boston and had the really bad day because I had not realized that it was Thanksgiving – and that the trains operated different schedules. I didn't have any change to make a call for a cab. So I had to walk three miles. and It was snowing. And when I got home, I called the phone sex line because I knew I was going to need a little extra support tonight. And I met this guy. And we went private. And we actually decided to exchange numbers. And he uh, had told me that he had just come from his uncle's funeral. And I told him about me dealing with Thanksgiving and being alone. And we continued to you know, talk that night. And we decided that we – liked each other, and we were going to continue to talk. And so we did for many, many months. And we did what most gay people did in those days, which was you would wear a pair of underwear, and then you would mail it to each other. You would uh, go take some semi-racy pictures, and you would find the one place in your town that would print them, and you'd mail them to each other. Um, so it was pretty innocent, if you will, but at the same time, I did it without anybody knowing. Um, my roommates at the time, Family, nobody knew. It was my little secret that I had a boyfriend who lived in Akron, Ohio, and I lived in Boston. Our letters started to get boring, and now it was time that we needed to meet. So I flew to Ohio and met. And I remembered when we first started talking, he had asked me how big my dick was. And I've discussed this before, but because I was short and skinny – I always thought that I had a small dick because to me in my crazy head, I thought the taller you were, the bigger your dick was going to be. So I told him, I don't know, like four or five inches. So I get to his house. We're like two savages. We couldn't even like control ourselves. And we strip down naked and he sees my penis and he says, Oh my God, you need to remeasure that. And I said, why? And he said, it's not four or five inches. And I'm like, yeah, it is. And he said, no, 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 it's way bigger. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, did you not know that? And I said, Well, you're the only person at this point, really, who's kind of seen it. I mean, I had fucked girls and they had seen it, but girls didn't count. They didn't know what a big penis was. They didn't even have one. And since my sex ed up to this point was watching straight porn on our cable box that you would change the the little thing to and it would make it staticky so you could kind of see but you could hear, and all girls moaned and complained during sex, and so were the ones that I had sex with, so I didn't think anything different about my penis size. And that is how I got my porn name, if I was ever going to go into porn, Tad Longer, which is one of the best names anyone ever came up with. And I loved it, actually. But I never did call myself Tad Longer. Now, my new Ohio boyfriend was also living his secret life. And so we pretended we were friends to anybody who had saw us or that we knew or that we had to introduce each other to. And he flew to California um, at one point, and I flew to California, and we met. We drove all around the coast and hung out. And then I met Mike, and Mike kind of helped me fully come out and stop living my secret life. And Jay and I had decided at that point, because I wasn't going to be moving to Ohio and he wasn't going to be moving to Boston, it was kind of pointless that we were dating each other. But I will tell you this. Still today, Jay and I every now and then send each other messages, and he's on my Instagram. And I think it's funny that that's how we met. and You never know who you go private with where they may be in your life in 25 years. This now becomes the period in your secret life that I'm going to call Catch Me If You Can. No, please, catch me. You start to get a little sloppy with the details. You uh, start dropping more hints. You start leaving things that you were once hiding in drawers, and everything becomes a little bit more loose because you're praying that someone will catch you because if they do, then you don't have to come out. You will have been outed and that's so much easier than saying yes yes or i have to tell you something i'm gay at this point in my life i knew i was gay but i could not say that i was gay it was the scariest thing for me to actually say um now i can say it i am gay my two older sisters uh when i came out they became very protective of anybody saying that i was gay and I thought it was really weird, and I finally had to tell them, look, it's not derogatory. I know, but we're just we, – we don't want anyone saying anything. We're being protective. I'm like, I know, but it's not derogatory, so don't argue with people because I am gay. My second oldest sister always tells me this, and I think it's the funniest. I never thought you were gay, she said. I just thought you were clean, which to her meant preppy or yuppie. I don't know how those two equal the same thing, I'm guessing, because you are tidy. I know. Um, the other thing that she always says is, Joey. What do the girls think when they see you and they know that you're gay? Thank God he's out of the closet. Because from what I can understand, straight girls don't like gay guys that are in the closet or straight guys who are in the closet. She'll immediately reply, no, no, I bet you they're sad. I bet you they cry. Which is really cute. But at the same time, that's not how this works. As I stated in my coming out story, I then came out to everybody First, my family and then my roommates that I was living with. And shortly after that, I moved to Chicago to continue my education and start my professional career. I met my first uh, boyfriend at the time, Greg. We were together for five years and still to this day are very good friends. um, We call him grandma because he falls asleep Uh, anytime you take him anywhere or you sit him down for too long. But he's a great person. And what I always say about my exes is they're amazing. They're great people. You should date them, not me. And so that is the end of another story. This was my secret life story. I hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll subscribe, review, and follow this podcast. Remember, this is a Mo story. I also want to say thank you to those of you who have been downloading this. Um, and I apologize for all the ums and the quality as I'm working on it and getting a little bit better and a little bit more fine-tuned with the individual shows themselves. So thank you. I will see you next week with episode number two, which is titled Pride.